0: Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby.
1: Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in today's programme we continue the great inflation-deflation debate with Bob Hoy of Institutional Advisors and Dr Mark Faber of the Gloom, Boom, Doom newsletter. Remember that this program is not broadcast on a regular basis, so the best way to keep up to date is to subscribe to the show with the subscribe with iTunes button on the left of the screen, and then new programs should be sent to your iTunes folder as soon as I upload them. A reminder of our disclaimer, anything you hear in this program is an expression of opinion only. It's not intended as investment advice.
0: Commodity Watch Radio at
1: Bob Hoy is the editor of Pivotal Events, a superb weekly newsletter giving you his overview of the markets. Bob's a keen market historian and an old favourite here on Commodity Watch Radio. Hello Bob, um, it's early in the morning there in Vancouver what's on the horizon, inflation or deflation?
2: Oh that's good because this thing is fall into a deflation so hard it's going to make everybody's head spin. The line I really like is that the contraction is so severe that it'll even drive policymakers sane. (laughs) (laughs) My imagination isn't great enough to take a quick look at current events and extrapolate out to what is likely to happen. What we do is take a look at previous great bubbles in history and note that there's similar patterns and similar conditions happen within it, and that the outcome is always uh, a, contra- a credit contraction amidst falling prices. In other words, let's call it a, the general description of deflation. So what you want to look at is the basic monstrous blunder in policymaking, which in terms of formal logic is called a primitive syllogism. That's where you see in the case of policy making, uh, the very naive uh, John Maynard Keynes came up with this idea that if the uh, state through a central bank expanded credit, that then prompt business activity and, uh, and that sort of thing. But Sure, on every business expansion, and uh, there is good documented evidence of the four- to five-year business cycle going all the way back to the 1500s. But the point is is that, yes, on a business expansion, credit does expand, but it's not credit forcing the expansion. So this is like the old, you know, and in the morning at sunrise, when the roosters crow, it causes the sun to rise. I see. And, that, that, they, and that's, that's how profound the thinking is behind interventionist economics. They then stimulate credit. That will then push the business cycle. But nope, what it is is that prices go up in a business cycle, credit expands with it, and then when prices start coming down, then credit will contract as well. Now, on top of this, you have this insanity of on each boom, they, let's just sort of stay with the Federal Reserve because it's the senior central bank days. They will then, uh, well, do their portion of credit stimulus, which then ultimately serves to depreciate the purchasing power of the dollar. And that's been going on oh since they opened the door of the Fed. One of the reasons for forming the Fed was to provide in quotes, a flexible currency, which meant you know, they could screw around. But, but what you end up with is uh, the continuation of the system in the U.S. which preceded that, which was the Treasury system without a central bank. And the, the boys who were promoting the Federal Reserve laid the blame on the old Treasury system for wild and volatile markets, (laughs) and they said the new Federal Reserve System will eliminate all that. Well, what have we had since? Wild and volatile markets, building to what I think is a huge crescendo on this latest uh, boom, and uh, any of these long expansion periods in the past of Run in the order of 10 expansions, like 10 business cycle recessions. And the last recession was number 10, so actually we've had number 11 boom. So, and then in the far, far past, the, there's only been three centuries where you ran into this chronic inflation and going the other way with the currency, chronic depreciation, and that was the 3rd century in Rome, and the 16th century, and the 20th century, plus the years into this century. So, and each one in the past ran about 100 years, and then the culture of boom, government, intervention, and the whole thing began to change such that you went into a long period of Quiet and but still the business cycle maintained. So this is a fascinating period in time. Uh, I think for those who have read history, it looks like the equivalent of the of what was called the Protestant Reformation in the early 1600s, and that was the same thing. End of a hundred years of rampant price uh, increase. Uh, Tremendous interventionist government, even authoritarian government, and then it all starts to unwind. So there's the big picture, and what one may want to do is look at the uh, the tighter picture in here. What's been happening over the last year in the markets, and uh, I think that we should turn to the uh, to one of the real reliable benchmarks which is the yield curve. <clears throat> and this takes us back to uh, the first part of 07 when we pointed out that typically a boom will run 12 to 16 months against an inverted curve. And before taking that further we should just take a sidestep into the world of orthodoxy, where when you're in such a boom and in the first quarter of last Wall Street was going on, oh, it was worrying about uh, rising short rates and the, uh, the curve and all that sort of stuff. And uh, we just simply pointed out that, hey, uh, so long as it's rising, the boom is on. And the idea, the, the consensus, uh, being concerned about rising interest rates is something that's very difficult to explain because for every business boom, interest rates go up. And then through every post-boom contraction, interest rates go down. So uh, the, the the big warning sign then began in, in February when the Treasury bill rate in the U.S. Which got up to I'm oh, 5.18% started to come down. And then, as we were publishing each edition through April, we we're pointing out June was the 16th month, and that was probably when the yield curve would reverse to steepening. And actually, it started to change in May, and you also had with that a change in the quality spreads or credit spreads, which had been narrowing in a boom when everybody is confident of the outlook, they started widening. So you had the two killer events, boom killers, changing in May and June. That is when the tide turned in the fortunes of the market. Now, and sorry. Yep. Well, no, I ahead. was just
1: going to ask you... What is going to go down in price and what is going to go up in price, if anything at all?
2: Well, let's let's be real, as, as simple as we can. We've been through a boom where one can say that there's been hoarding of financial assets. You know, all of these credit instruments, somebody was buying them and holding them. All of these stock issues, somebody was buying them and holding them. And then all of these, let's... A general on the credit side and derivatives huge derivatives somebody's been buying and holding them then also you had uh, one of the best commodity booms in a hundred years of data uh, like for example the gains in, in uh, nickel were you know almost twice the biggest percentage gain in the history of prices that we got which I say goes back hundred years. And then also, you had a most unusual promotion on commodities whereby uh, they dreamt of the idea the pension funds should uh, own 5% or 6% weighting in this suddenly very desirable asset class of commodities. And uh, so that has been on. And you, you have then a new player in the commodity market Hitherto, it was producers and users and then a bunch of speculators in the middle, which are fine, you know, uh, small speculators, Uh, so that you then have uh, liquidity in the market and diversity of risk and that sort of stuff. But this time, Wall Street had invented this notion that that pension funds should own commodities. And so you had them buying... And holding and taking them, so to speak, out of the market.
1: Are you not a believer in the twenty-year secular cycle in commodities?
2: Oh, sure. But they come. That comes out of a depression bottom, not, not at the height, uh, not within an era of, of rampant asset inflation. What
1: was Was two thousand not a depression bottom for commodities?
2: No, 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 no. <laughs> the nineteen uh, well. The 1930s was a depression bottom. Now, what you what the the most reliable boom um, for commodities is the 20 years coming out of a a depression bottom. Uh, so, but what that was into the market that you had, as I said, the the percent gains uh, were way beyond anything clocked in a hundred years. So, in effect, as these big percentage gains were being clocked, the market was already discounting the big pitch that you that the commodities were going to go up for 20 years. So, But to get back to the institutions, you then had hoarding of commodities. Well, this has happened before. I mean, for example, uh, the 1920 bull market did include some action in commodities, although the real big action was in the, uh, it blew out in 1920. But if you go back one more bubble in 1873, the US was on fiat currency. And at the top of that bubble you had the usual strains showing up in credit spreads and the yield curve. And the senior newspaper in New York editorialized it, well, gosh, we've got the treasury system and we have and they didn't use the term fiat currency, and you have an outstanding secretary of the Treasury, nothing can go wrong. Hey they're there, if you're with a mere national bank bound by gold standard, then you can't do anything and that's not so good. So the tout in the late summer of eighteen seventy three was that while there were strains in the market, nothing could go wrong because the Treasury, the secretary there was to bail everything out. Well that was a five year bear market, and uh, then by eighteen eighty four senior economists described the contraction that began in uh, 19- 1873 as the great depression and the great Depression around in eighteen ninety five and it was described as the, and analyzed by academics as the great depression until nineteen forty when they said, "Oh whoa, we've got another one here." <laughs> So but the point on all of these things is when the market has hoarded financial assets, hoarded tangible assets, and leveraged their life against it, what's next? Prices falling, the value of cash going up, and then everybody hoards cash and and you recall the Keynesian hysteria in the nineteen thirties about those dreadful people who were hoarding money. And um uh, So I believe that 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 I don't think today's policymakers know how to really alter history because they don't alter history. All they do is amplify or exaggerate whatever is going on. As I said, they set the Fed up in 1914 to take a look at uh, any... uh, any commodity price index in that 1920 21 was one of the biggest swings you could imagine. Uh, then the 1929 crash was the biggest uh, the most dramatic fast crash in, in, in U.S. history. So the point to be made is that the booms and busts have continued, and all you have is through the introduction of extremely ambitious policymaking is they've exaggerated the ups and downs and we are now on the down. So it's going to be, and even the consensus, your orthodox side of the street is now beginning to understand that this credit contraction is immense.
1: Let me ask you, Bob, I, I know you're not a great uh, admirer of policymakers, um, but they're attempts at the moment are ultra-inflationary we have negative interest rates on the US dollar for example and a lot of bailing out of investment banks is going on and we have Northern Rock over here being bailed out this is all highly inflationary Uh, but at the same time you have the deflationary pressures in the private sector of this credit contraction when you have a currency that isn't backed by anything and it is possible to print money to use a cliche Um, surely all this is going to end in some kind of hyperinflationary uh, scenario rather than a deflationary one.
2: Yeah, I can see that in a thought, but keep in mind that uh, in the Weimar inflation in Germany in 1922-23, that was actual printing press money. You've seen the, the shots of people going along with wheelbarrows full of currency. And there was no uh, credit market or bond market in Germany at that time to destroy. I mean, there it, it wasn't much of a market there for credit. But what you have in the U.S. now is a credit-based economy. And uh, where the, the, uh, the net is, is that at some point there will be enough asset prices falling such that the Fed will be unable to do its portion of credit expansion, and uh, they—it's impossible in the U.S. No matter how evil the policymakers become, they can't do a, 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 an actual printing press uh, inflation.
1: Can they not do the same thing just by issuing treasuries and uh, digital money? Yeah, but
2: that's that's credit, and. It's, now, here, one of the asset classes, uh, and, and this is, you've got to wrap your mind around this one, until a year ago, of course, one of the big asset classes was corporate bond market. Prices were going up. Let's call this inflated bond prices. Now, those inflated bond prices on the corporate side have been coming down quite substantially. So this then has pushed uh, investors into playing the long treasury and they have had the uh, nerve to call it a flight to quality. But hey, the game's been on until this week whereby every decline in the senior stock indexes, they'd bid the long bond up on a so-called flight to quality. But when you're in a real financial storm, the flight is to the most liquid item, which is tre- U.S. Treasury bills. So, uh, and this week, as I said, there was something different in the bond price. It, it was sort of, uh, well, there was a couple of days there when it was down when the stock market was down. So, whether this continues, we don't know. There's just a, a bit of a glimpse here of something interesting. So, but at some point, the long bond price will get trashed. Now, one thing that I have seen that suggests some influence by the extraordinary amount of stimulation that the central bank is trying is that since uh, last August, when that panic, that also included money market deaths because you had a sudden uh, you know, widening of spreads by about 20 basis points, say, between... Uh, LIBOR and Treasury bills or between Treasury bills and three months of commercial paper, that was a, that hit got money market death so but we've had hits to the stock markets and the financial markets particularly January and March and then you had the Fannie and Freddie problem and credit spreads at money market levels have not widened and the only thing I can think of that would explain that is the incredible ease that the Fed is doing, but we should also turn to guidance, and honestly, you don't want to turn to the orthodox side of the street, which in its analysis of 1929 has never gone back any earlier than that, and it also concludes that the Federal Reserve system is perfect, but the reason why you had the post-1929 contraction was because the individuals running it then made an error uh, in being too late. So, but if you look at uh, reports at the time, uh, the big error, uh, again according to academics and even Milton Friedman of all people, was that the Fed raised the discount rate from five to six percent in early August, but that. The T-bill rate was already seeing the slowing of the economy and the slowing of the boom. It had been coming down by about 50 basis points. So the Fed, as usual, was behind the market. And um, also, when they announced that increase in the discount rate, they explained that that was to tie money for Wall Street, but they were easing money for Main Street. And as usual, the stock market crashed, and... It took the economy with it pretty quickly. So um, the other points, if you read a more detailed and non-interventionist history of the 1929, is that the head of the New York Fed, which then was huge relative to the other chapters as now, uh, stepped into the money markets and, and accommodated exceeded its lending authority by a factor of six times. And then if you look back in 1873, there is evidence where the Treasury tried to stem the contraction. And then if you go back even to the 1825 bubble, in London, which was then the financial capital of the world, the Bank of England then was unfettered by previous regulations about usury and high interest rates and it did everything to stem that contraction. I've got a very vivid quote written by one of the uh, senior people at the Bank of England and what happened? You had a long 20-year contraction down to the 1848 period uh, depression drop. 1873 you followed with a long well, in real time, they called it the Great Depression, the following 1929. So there is tremendous, or not shouldn't say tremendous, but there is adequate evidence that at those big bubble tops and the first wave of liquidation, that the powers that be did everything they could by way of injecting credit to prevent the contraction, the contraction happened anyway. So the people who now sit up there and say that this stimulation will work don't understand that it has been tried before and has not worked. But you can take it in a more simpler way, which seems to uh, encompass some of uh, current views, is that somebody with opinion rather than evidence, is going to say, oh, they inflate their way out of this one, or somebody with imp- opinion and without evidence is going to say, oh, no, it's going to be deflation. All I'm saying is that under similar circumstances in the past, the remedies of throwing a lot of money, you know, discounting uh, at, the, at the loan window, and uh, buying bonds out of the market and putting in short-term cash, has never worked in the past.
1: Do you see gold doing well?
2: Now, here you got into gold. Yes, this is this one is uh, interesting. And you have in history, long periods, like it was around 150 years of, of British history when it was the senior economy and the senior central bank, when the uh, sterling was convertible into gold on, upon demand. And so then there you no know, price change in the price of gold. But the only way you can figure out what was going on was to take the, a consumer price index annual and divide it by whatever that price, fixed price of gold was. Now then you see that the price of gold changes, or the purchasing power of gold, or its deflated price changes. And it sets a very consistent pattern as that Typically, it, the, and Now, we're, we're talking basically in the environment we have been in, a big boom in financial and tangible assets. And, uh, they, uh, and that whether you start 1720 with the South Sea bubble or the other one, 1772, was a fairly good bubble or 1825, the real price of gold comes down to a significant low in the year the bubble blows out then it increases typically for three to four years on the first business contraction. So, But and then if you look at it and you sort of say, let's look at money. And what does money do during a boom? Well, you get the, the stock market doubling or tripling, so the purchasing power of money to buy the stock market is diminishing as the price of stocks goes up. Then, of course, when you get the bust and the stock market crashes, then the purchasing power Amount of money goes up. So, and uh, that also, even when we're in a fiat currency, uh, confirms that gold at the end of the day is still money. And you've had with the boom, and uh, we, whereas, you know, for a couple hundred years you could use a, a standard consumer price index, but ever since Clinton was in office, of course, the. The calculation then of the consumer price index was inconvenient to his ambition, so they changed it. And uh, what could be 10% rate of inflation now is given as 4.5. So we don't use that CPI because it's suspect. Instead, we came up with a commodity index that hopefully would have been fairly close to the economist all items commodity index and it has been. Actually we've been fortunate. The reason why we chose the economist all items is because it does not include gold. So if you want to know what gold's doing relative to commodities, you don't want to do it again an index that includes gold. Yeah. Because gold is not a commodity, it is money. So here we are and on that simple calculation the <clears throat> The uh, real price of gold uh, relative to co- this commodity index uh, came down to 143 last May. That was from 255 in 003, which is when the, the late boom really started to launch. So it worked. Uh, the real price of gold should have gone down during a boom. And then since uh, May '07, that index, Increased to 143 to 232 recently. So, in in troubled markets, the real price of gold is going up. That's the way it should work. So, and this was decades when this research was done, and in order to come up with an explanation of why the real price of gold would go up, you just we just looked at I did at. The collapse of all the instruments of credit that were created during the boom, and also we should look at a definition or a description of these periods. Is that you know, uh, uh, financial innovation is one good general term. Where and actually what they're doing is inventing different credit instruments, and that that there's evidence of that in 1720 as well. So. Then, when these contrived credit instruments that are, of course, based upon underlying rising prices, and when the prices start to fall, then those instruments become uncertain, uh, you know, they're hypothecated, and then you get a a contraction in the amount of credit outstanding. Now, that has been going on, and it's a grinder. So then, Mother Nature. Who is really running the show? Then starts to increase the real price of gold, which, uh, in its early stages, starts to increase the size of ore deposits. You know, with an average grade, Uh, it starts to enhance uh, production of gold. Uh, Say you get a, a, a the crash in crude oil continues. That's and you know how much energy it takes to run a mine. So uh, then, what happens if the price of real price of gold increases, production of gold increases, and then that starts to reliquify the banking system when all of these crazy, crazily invented credit instruments are contracting? So um, it's happened five times before since the first ex- big example in 1720, and again, I don't see anything. That would put these recurring patterns off of rails. You know, this is the, it's always tempting to say, well, this time it's going to be different. And that's what I think people who are saying that can continue the credit inflation uh, are saying that this time it is different. You can, somehow, the central bankers will be able to revitalize speculators uh, when, in, not the, under similar circumstances they've never been able to. And this is the key. I mean I often I quip that sure, the cure for this contraction is very simple. All the policymakers have to do is to get all the participants in the credit markets, that lenders and borrowers, to be as reckless as they were two years ago. Now when everybody's balance sheet is hugely upside, how can people be reckless in the credit markets again? They can't. That's how simple it is. All that that need be done, and, and let's face it, if you get everybody as reckless as they were two years ago, asset prices will be going up again, won't they?
1: So in your eyes, hoard cash, be it gold, dollars, Canadian dollars, euros, yen, hoard cash.
2: Well, there's an old saying that cash in a crash, but that's not terribly sophisticated and reflective of post-bubble history. Actually, what happens in the, in the post-bubble contraction is that treasury bill rates fall. So if you're in short-dated stuff, every over, ro- ro- you're going to get lower interest rates. But if you're like the crowd lately that has been buying the long bond because it's the flight to quality... Um, you're going to take a huge drop in price because long interest rates in the post bubble period go up immensely, mainly because liquidity disappears. So, again, using history, the best place to be is on the yield curve at about the four- to five-year maturity. Uh, You won't suffer uh, lower interest rates, and you won't suffer uh, falling uh, bond prices. do
1: Do you think that's a better investment than gold?
2: Uh, Well, not everybody can buy gold, all gold. Uh, Gold will uh, this... Probably we're going to get another liquidity crisis down into, uh, say, October or November. And then, again, using 1929, for an example, the real price of gold fell until November. Then, using uh, the 1873 example, the real price of gold fell until the crisis is over in November. So, our view... Is that the way out of the horrendous financial dislocation? Will, as usually usual, be provided by gold going up in real terms and then starting to liquefy the banking system. And there will be some good trade in gold and gold shares. But if you're an investor, uh, say you know an institutional investor, uh, you can't own 100% gold or gold shares, and one of the safest places on the board to be is in the four- to five-year government notes. Uh, And again, going back a couple of months ago, our recommendation was that one should also include U.S. Treasuries in that because we were looking for a rise in the U.S. dollar as the speculation went out of commodities.
1: I've got uh, two more questions for you Bob very quickly before before we go and we're running out of time. Um uh, first one you uh, are you a believer in oil do you see uh, are you a believer in peak oil I should say do you see oil prices rising or do you see uh, I'm talking over the intermediate to long term here or, or yeah. do you see further down Oh
2: oil has been a wonderful play for us. It, we rode it up until uh, at the end of June early July our proprietary model came up with what we call an upside Exhaustion on the move. That um, first of all came in on a weekly basis. I haven't seen one of those since Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990. A few weeks later, into July, we got it on a monthly basis. We hadn't seen that since uh, 1980. So our call at that time was that, that the top was in, and that a, a, it, it, it was a secular high. In which case, you're going to have a secular bear market for crude oil.
1: And finally, um, the disaster that is the Canadian junior mining sector. What are your thoughts on that? Do you see any improvement?
2: Oh, I think about that every week. There's no liquidity. Um, there has been, even for uh, a couple of world-scale uh, potential gold properties that I know of, the two companies, um, no, uh, it's just not there. And, but again... We're looking to the real price of gold to falter and definitely the, um, the dollar price of gold to go down until the November and the gold stocks, senior gold stocks. Then I think that will be the start of, of uh, a, made, uh, a cyclical bull market for gold and gold shares that will eventually encompass the juniors. You know, like any other bear market for gold. You buy the seniors at the bottom, and then as things start to lift off, then you roll down to the medium-sized ones and finally down to small caps. And every, oh, about every four or five months we think, oh, maybe it's bad. And now we should put together a list of juniors. And I'll talk to some of the gold fund managers, get a list of juniors, and then we never get around to publishing, and it's just as well. <laughs> because it, it, it's been a disaster, ironically one of the worst things that can happen would be an outbreak of sound money. But then that's what happens in a post-bubble contraction. Money picks up value. Prices of everything else go down as credit contracts. And uh, again, history that, out that <clears throat> excuse me, the senior currency following a bubble eventually becomes chronically strong against most commodities Most other currencies, for most of the time, and perhaps this last low for the dollar index at 71, uh, we had uh, it it gave uh, the opposite to the signal for or for crude oil, for example, it gave our uh, downside capitulation reading, and there was other technicals in there that suggested that. Uh, that there would be an intermediate uh, rally for gold, or for the dollar, and and that's what's been happening. So it's working out. It's heading for a a very severe yet contraction in credit accompanied by falling prices, as speculators can no longer uh, hold positions in these hitherto desirable items such as commodities.
1: All right. Well, Bob, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I was planning for this interview to last a tight 15 minutes, and uh, we've spoken for 40. <laughs>
2: you can edit it down.
1: <laughs> well, it's too difficult, and there's there's too much yeah. gold in there, so uh, I'm going to leave it yeah. as it is, or I'll work something out. But, uh, Bob Hoy, uh, why don't you give out the website for Pivotal Events one more time? I, I must sure, say but it's just an excellent look at it. It's
2: in- institutionaladvisors.com for direct to the website, or actually there's enough... Uh, publish stuff published stuff around with my name. Just Bob Hoy, B O B H O Y E. Google that gets you into a whole lot of our our publications, so
1: Okay. Well good stuff. Very good. Bob Hoy, thank you very much.
2: Pleasure then, Dominic.
0: You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee.
1: Dr. Mark Faber is editor of the Gloom, Boom, Doom report, which you can find at the website gloomboomdoom.com, all the ooze. Hi, Mark.
3: Hi, Dominic.
1: Where, where are you in the world at the moment?
3: I'm at the moment in Amman in Jordania, and I'm on my way to Syria.
1: I see. What, what are you doing?
3: Here in Jordania, basically uh, a speech and then uh, holidays in Syria.
1: I see, an unusual choice, but uh, good stuff. Um, Mark, inflation or deflation, which do you see, or both?
3: Well, I think it's important to understand that in any kind of system, we always have a combination of, A, some assets going up and some assets going down in value, and at the same time, we have some prices that go up for consumer goods, and other prices decline for consumer goods. Uh, The moves in asset prices and consumer goods obviously depend very much on uh, demand for individual goods and services. So I think that is important to understand. And broadly speaking, we had essentially in the 70s uh, high Commodities inflation, high consumer price inflation, but we had a terrific deflation in bond prices and equities moved sideways, and then starting with eighty two the world changed very dramatically and consumer price increases moderated. We didn't go into a period of deflation, but we went into a period of disinflation for the next twenty years or so. During which asset prices, uh, notably equities and bonds, rose very strongly until year 2000, and uh, at the same time, we had deflation in the commodity markets and disinflation in consumer prices. And then starting around uh, between '99 and 2001, commodity prices bottomed out and started to go up. And then we had ultra-expansionary monetary policies kicking in already before 2000, but especially after uh, January 2001, when the Fed cut interest rates from 6.5% for the Fed fund to 1% in 2003, and left the Fed fund rate at 1% until June 2004. That then led To a colossal asset inflation in everything. In other words, commodities went up, equities went up after October 2002, art prices went up, real estate went up globally, even totally worthless collectibles went up. And remarkably, also bond prices continued to rally. In other words, interest rates continued to. Uh, decline, and then they kind of bottomed out after 2003, but they didn't go up a lot since then. And now the big question is obviously what is happening to asset markets, will asset markets deflate, whereas we get more consumer price inflation, and uh, the periods during which interest rates could rather rise than decline. So there are a lot of open questions right now.
1: And, I mean, what are the answers?
3: <laughs> well, basically, my view is that we have a very meaningful slowdown in global economic activity, because after 2001, the U.S. economy began to recover in November 2001 officially, and uh, it was accompanied largely because of expansionary monetary policies by high housing inflation in the U.S. That then led to the refinancing boom and to so-called overconsumption, which was reflected in the rise of the U.S. trade and current account deficit. And that then oil greased the foreign economies, the exporting countries, and led to very sharp increases in oil prices and other commodities, which in turn was very favorable for the resource producers of the world, who in turn began to import capital goods and luxury goods. And so the global economy went into a synchronized global boom, and I think this global synchronized global boom could end in a global synchronized bust, Uh, whereby the demand for raw materials would not go up as much as expected and decline and where consumption in the U.S. would go down. And as a result of that, the trade and current account deficit would diminish in the United States. And since the trade and current account deficit of the U.S. were really the driver of excess global liquidity Their decline could reduce global liquidity, which would be negative for asset markets, but obviously positive for the U.S. dollar. So personally, I look for still lower commodity prices in the next six months, including gold and including oil, and uh, essentially also for kind of a slowdown in consumer price increases, whereby we have to see very clearly that consumer prices and commodity prices will not go back to the level they were in the years 1999 to
1: 2001. Are you a believer in the in the 20-year secular bull market in commodities theory?
3: Well, in principle, we have in commodities these uh, long-term cycles. Uh, we call them. Uh, Konratievs, they last uh, from peak to peak uh, between 45 and 60 years. So the upward wave is usually around 20 to 30 years, and the downward wave 20 to 30 years. And if you take the last peak of commodity prices, then it was in real terms in 1974, and in nominal terms in 1980 measured by the CRB index and so we had a declining trend of more than 20 years until 1999 to 2001. We're now in 2008 so we're essentially seven years into the bull market and we can have big corrections and we had big corrections in nickel, in lead, in zinc which have already declined by 50 percent and then the bull market may reassert itself. All I can say is, in my opinion, the Federal Reserve in the U.S., which has again cut the Fed fund rate very aggressively from 5.25% to 2%, uh, is pursuing, of course, very inflationary monetary policies because the Fed fund rate is significantly below the rate of inflation.
1: Yes, um do you see i 've got two questions about that I mean the fact that basically governments and central banks seem to be pursuing an inflationary monetary policy, but the private sector and banks uh, that we, we're undergoing a credit contraction there 's essentially a deflationary and an inflationary force uh, coming into opposition. which do you think will prevail
3: Well, you put it very well, we basically have to look at it like a a war between the private sector that is withdrawing credit through tighter lending standards and through huge losses that the private sector has incurred and the government sector that basically wants to save the economies by pursuing expansionary monetary policies and manipulating markets with interventions to support asset prices and also uh, through fiscal policies that are expansionary. In other words, you send checks to households uh, and hope that the, it will stimulate consumption. And so this war that is waging between the private sector that is withdrawing credit and the public sector, in other words, the government, that is throwing money at the system to support it, creates of course different battles and occasionally a battle is won by the private sector and markets go down and then another battle is won by the public sector and markets rebound and who the ultimate winner will be is difficult to tell but my impression based on historical precedence is that of course if you throw enough money at the system you will get somewhere price increases It may not be in asset prices, it could be in consumer prices, or if you get it in asset prices, maybe not in the assets you want to go up. The Fed would ideally... For the Fed, the world looks like this. As long as home prices go up and as long as equity prices go up, that is good. When commodity prices go up, blame the speculators for it. So, you know, the the Fed... It's basically brain damage. They don't know what they're doing because if you print money, the one thing a central bank cannot control is where prices will go up. They may not go up for housing. They may not go up for equities. They could go up the price of money, say interest rates, because inflationary expectations increase. So people sell bonds and interest rates go up. They could go up for commodities.
1: So, essentially, uh, if I'm uh, reading what you're saying correctly, you see a period of further price falls, in other words, a period of deflation, and followed by a period of quite significant price rises in an asset class that perhaps could surprise everyone.
3: Well, basically, I look at it this way. I think because of the contraction in the current account deficit in the U.S., we may have further discomfort in asset markets in other words that equities will not rally meaningfully here and that real estate prices will still continue to go down and that industrial commodities go down for a while and that at the same time consumer prices still continue to go up for the simple reason that during the increase in commodity prices, a lot of companies were reluctant to increase prices, but now because their margins got squeezed, they are now increasing prices, whether that is for food items or for you know, small consumer goods and so forth, so these prices could continue to go up and squeeze the consumer. You know, the consumer, when he has a 100, he has certain expenditures that are are necessities of life like health care and food and energy and health care insurance and so forth and education for the children. That he can't do much about it. Those items may continue to inflate whereas the demand for discretionary items gets squeezed and that then leads to a deficiency of demand and the contraction in consumption that is reflected in the decline in the trade and current account
2: deficits.
1: Um, You mentioned the artificially low interest rates in the US. Um, Do you think the the bond market could be the next bubble to pop? Do you see a potential shorting opportunity there?
3: Well, we have to distinguish between high-quality bonds, government bonds, And anything that is not government bonds, Uh, since the Fed began to cut the Fed fund rate from 5.25% down to 2%, that is from last September 18th to January of this year, government bonds have rallied somewhat, but not by much. And anything that is not government bonds hasn't rallied, even AAAs, because spreads have been widening. And lower quality bonds, anything that is A's, the yields are actually higher than when the Fed began to cut rates because of credit problems. So we don't have a bubble in lower quality bonds. They have actually already collapsed. And I would think that at some point there will be buying opportunity in lower quality bonds, probably not yet and one will have to be very selective. But I think that government bonds, you know, the 10 years and the 30 years are not very good value at this stage, whereby maybe they will continue to rally for another two, three months as the global economy continues to slow down. But eventually, interest rates follow commodity prices, the long cycle. So we have commodity prices peaking out in 1980, and the bond market bottomed out in September 81. Then we have commodity prices going down for roughly 20 years, and interest rates also. And I believe that now we are in an upcycle for commodity prices that will be interrupted at times um, by big corrections and the, the deficiency of demand. But In general, I believe that uh, in this environment, interest rates will eventually go up. And now the ten years is say at in the United States at three point eight eight four percent. That doesn't protect you from inflation. I don't. I think over the next ten years, inflation will be higher than three point eight percent.
1: That's very interesting, Mark. Are you buying anything at the moment?
3: Well, basically. I think that the gold price will still go down here, but for someone that doesn't own any gold, I think he should probably start to look at gold and buy on the way down. Possibly it will go down to, I don't know, $680, 700 And I would probably be long the dollar at the present time. I think the dollar doesn't have a very significant uh, Downside risk right now, but obviously long term I'm not optimistic about uh, the dollar. And in terms of buying, I would rather look at selling rallies in the stock market than at buying equities at the present time.
1: I see. Well, it seems that they're going to have to invent some some new kind of flation to describe what we're about to go through because it's kind of neither inflation nor deflation nor but it's both.
3: Well, basically what we could have is a period of a nasty stagflation whereby, you know, the global economy doesn't expand very much because the consumer is squeezed and uh, at the same time it then has an impact on the pricing of some items where the demand doesn't go up and prices rather come down, but on the other hand, other prices go up because there are still relative imbalances in the demand and supply. Let's put it this way. I think that the oil price could go down somewhat, but the demand from China and India won't go away and the geopolitical problems won't go away. And uh, it now looks increasingly likely that Mr McCain may actually win the elections in the United States. Then you have again essentially the neocons that stay in power that may be quite uh, that may bring quite a lot of disruption to us foreign policy and actions that then rather boost commodity prices and depress them.
1: I see. Well, Mark, you'll be pleased to hear, when we spoke, when you came to London, I don't know, 12 or 18 months ago, you were bemoaning the cost of everything. Um, the house prices, if nothing else, have come down quite considerably since then.
3: Yes, I am aware of that. But they're still quite high, and I think home prices in the UK will go lower, as well as in Australia. The only thing I can say is basically what may support the U.S. dollar somewhat is that actually economies outside the U.S. may suffer much worse than the U.S. in this global slowdown. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Mark- I think that investors will have to live with a lot of volatility and uh, maybe stocks can rebound here somewhat. I don't think they'll go very far for the simple reason that corporate profits will not go back to the level they were at the beginning of 2007. So let's say, if the estimates for S&P earnings for next year are over $100, I think the S&P next year may only earn around $60. So if the S&P is now at 1300 it sells at 20 times earnings, not exactly a bargain.
1: No. <laughs> Mark Farber, it's always been a pleasure. I'll give out your website one more time. It's gloomboomdoom.com. Thank you very much.
3: My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisby for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.